Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I'm your host, Brian R. Solomon, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 5. Wow, I never thought we'd get this far. Just kidding. But we did get this far. It's Episode 5 of Shut Up and Wrestle. We have a very interesting guest coming up very soon, a true jack-of-all-trades in the wrestling business, and a man who knows quite a bit about old-school wrestling, if I do say so myself. Uh, We'll get to him in a second. But uh, before we get to that, I want to make mention of a couple of things. Um, Just want to say that uh, I don't know if I have um, any listeners in the Bridgeport, Connecticut area, but if you happen to see a big uh, Jurassic Express Luchasaurus and Jungle Boy sign at the Webster Bank Arena taping of Dynamite and Rampage last week, then that was me. Uh, We had a nice little family outing with my beautiful wife and my lovely son uh, at the most recent AEW show. And we had a really good time, really great show. Um, also shout out, uh, shout out to my friend uh, Lucas Chase, the uh, up and coming indie wrestler and graduate of the Rhodes Wrestling Academy, who happened to be one of the very intense looking uh, security guards during that um, confrontation between Chris Jericho and Eddie Kingston. So, Uh, Good on him for that. It was a great segment. We enjoyed the show. I want to mention a couple of appearances that uh, I have made in the past week that you could check out on some uh, other podcasts. So I was recently the guest on the Two Man Power Trip podcast, which you could find on Podomatic. Great show. And I was happy to talk about uh, my upcoming book on The Sheik and uh, among other things. And I also want to make mention of the latest installment of the official Cella Toys podcast. Uh, You may know of Cella Toys as a prolific producer of licensed wrestling action figures in the UK. I'm always happy to be on that show with Mr. Pablo Melons. And this time we got to talk about the powers of pain, uh, whose new figures are coming out from Cella Toys. So that was an interesting discussion that you might want to seek out. You also might want to seek out the newest issue of Inside the Ropes magazine, a magazine that I am proud to be a part of and a regular contributor to. They just had their March issue, issue 18, come out, and uh, it's got Ronda Rousey on the cover. And I've got a story in there that um, I really worked pretty hard on, so I'm kind of proud of it. It's a, a piece I wrote about the rise and apparent fall of uh, Triple H, a.k.a. Paul Levesque, in his position of power at WWE, where I go all the way back to the beginning of his time at WWE and even before that, and just kind of track this very dramatic turn of events that we've all been watching unfold. So that is in the March issue, issue 18 of Inside the Ropes. You can get that at insidetheropesmagazine.com. But enough of all that, I'd like to take us to our latest guest on the show, who is 
none other than Mr. Les Thatcher. Now, Les is somebody that I first met, and I'll mention this in the interview too. I first met him 22 years ago, uh, 21 years ago at the last Brian Pillman Memorial Show, which was run in Cincinnati. And of course, Les's organization at the time, Heartland Wrestling Association, was a big part of that and was the, was the force behind it. And at the time also, HWA was a developmental partner for WWE or WWF in the days before um, NXT, way before NXT. And so uh, I had a great experience at that show. It was where I met Ricky Steamboat and, um, you know, where I got to see Bobby Eaton wrestle for the one and only time that I ever got to see him live. And I, I got to see John Cena wrestle Randy Orton. And I did it all as part of my job. So and Les was extremely accommodating and professional and, and wonderful. So I was happy to have him as our next guest. He's done it all in the business, but I'll leave that to the interview for you to find out. So without further ado, I will take you to my interview and conversation with Les Thatcher. Okay, so right now, I would really, really love to welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle somebody who, and people say this sometimes, but this time it's the truth, somebody who has done almost everything there is to do in the wrestling business. So you could tell me if I leave anything out here, but trainer, wrestler, announcer, promoter, booker, publisher, whatever else I've left out, we'll get to, but he has, he has guided the careers of a lot of the people that you watch on TV today and um, people that even came before them. And he's somebody that I met and he'll maybe tell a white lie and say that he remembers it, but it was 21 years ago at the last Brian Pillman Memorial Show. And I am talking about none other than Les Thatcher. Les, thank you. Hey, Brian, it's good to be on your show. And 21 years, my God, it, it's been a while. And, and I'd be lying if I said I remember, but I, I'm going to put you over since you're the host. Brian, I remember everything. <laughs> Perfect. That's just what I like to hear. No, but whether you remember or not, you were, you were so kind and so courteous that day, I have to tell you, because I was... Um, I was a, a writer for WWE magazine. I wasn't even an editor yet. It was it was one of my first assignments. They sent me on location to you know write about the show, and you had a million things going on. Needless to say, and and you were kind to me. You made time for me. You showed me where I needed to be and everything. And you you weren't dismissive in the least. And I knew that you were the busiest person in there that day. So so thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, you know those shows. Uh, I always wanted, I never had a pedometer, but I always wanted to put one on and try to see how many miles I walked in the course of one day of a Bill and Memorial show, right? Because dressing rooms, box office, uh, merchandise, concessions, et cetera, et cetera. But I know uh, I'm so proud of those shows and, and so honored and proud of the people that joined me, uh, you know, and putting those things together, especially the wrestlers who gave their time for free. You know, and uh, the fact that uh, we were able to put the top wrestlers from WWF, WCW, and ECW all in the same building at the same time, uh, I felt good that those three companies trusted me enough with their talent in that situation. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, those are great shows. And uh, well, you were, you must be able to say the same thing, right? The, what I always thought was so great about those shows is that the guys from the main rosters, I mean, the main, from the three major companies, uh, 
they never held back. There was no nobody phoned it in. Every match, everybody was going at it like this was the biggest show in their life, and uh, I was felt so good about all that. So, yeah, real proud of those shows, and I'm glad you got to see one. Yeah, it, it really was something special. And, you know, people like to talk about the Forbidden Door today, right? But that was the, the original Forbidden Door, get, getting all those guys together and, and girls from, from various promotions and companies that didn't normally work together. And by the time that I got there at the last one, you know, WWF had bought up everything. So it was a little bit different. But still, I mean, I remember I saw on that show, of all things, when they were both still just developmental talent i saw john cena versus randy orton if i remember right that was at that last the first time ever yes anybody's ring yeah absolutely that was you know future wrestlemania main event and now they wrestled about eight million times but but that was uh the first and i also remember what i remember from that night is a couple things dean malenko announcing his retirement which i think surprised everybody maybe not you but me um, and I remember, you know, growing up in the Northeast, I didn't, it, it was my only opportunity that I ever got to see Bobby Eaton work live. Um, and it was the legends match. It was him versus Terry Taylor with, um, Ricky Steamboat as the referee. Right. And I remember I, I was interviewing Rick backstage before the match and I was pretty new, you know, at the, that time. So that was a big deal to me. And he had to go out. It was time for him to go out to the ring. And he hands me his Rolex to take care of while he's in the ring. And I'm just, you know, I'm trying to take it in stride. Like it's the most normal thing in the world, but I'm standing there just in disbelief. And of course, then I went out and I watched it from the, from the curtain. Uh, It was just really something to see. Yeah. You know, uh, the crazy thing about uh, those, Everybody, uh, it's it so much fun, you know. I, I think the differences of opinion and everything just fell apart. But you know, you know, Ricky uh, was so giving, you know. And we do uh, that year and the year before, we had, we had done the uh, uh, Mark Curtis fantasy camps the day before the Billman show, and Ricky made those too, you know. So yeah, we we had some. I mean, such great talent to give so much of themselves. I'll tell you about that particular show. Two matches jumped off the page at me. Uh, Bill DeMont and Mark Henry, because Mark was a little down in, in, in the dumps that day for some reason. And we were talking about things. And, and I said, you know, there's always something special on these shows, something special happens. I said, you guys go out and steal this show. And uh, they went out, and it wasn't a big man's match. If you get a chance to see it again, those guys are working their asses off. I don't know how to say it any different than that. And I'm so proud of them. I'm so happy for them because they, they actually had one of the best matches I've ever seen. Two guys of that size, you know, have. And then four of my kids, I think, stole the show. Pepper Parks, who is now a blade in mm-hmm. AEW. Mm-hmm. Shark Boy, Chad Collier. And uh, Matt Stryker had a four-way, which I'm not a three-way, four-way, 9,000-way guy to begin with, right? But, we, you know, we're trying to get everybody on the show. And it I, I will say this. I think it was one of the best four-way matches I've ever seen anybody have. And uh, they just stepped up for it. They really did. 
Yeah, that it seemed like everybody really was putting in just uh, above and beyond kind of effort, you know, uh, because they knew the the importance of that show. And also, I feel like people watched that show. I mean, it was important things came out of that show. Just the, the in general, the the way people, um, you know, performed at that show led to other things in some cases you know because uh, it was it was the, the it was the kind of thing that the whole industry was watching and i remember there was um there was a training camp uh that weekend or something and i'm thinking you know people talk now about how uh the 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 disconnect between the older generation and the younger generation in terms of working i remember and keep in mind this is 2001 i remember steamboat and he was talking he was in the ring i think he was talking to taylor or somebody and he was complaining about how some of these kids didn't know how to do a lockup you know they didn't know anything like he was just saying hey lock up with me let's see what you can do and and they didn't know how to do a lockup and this is 21 years ago so right yeah it's you know it's crazy but in talking to other trainers i i know they they run into the same problems but you know the foundation, the fundamentals of this business will never change. They're the same today as they were 61 plus years ago when I started training and broke into business. But the problem is that's all I saw 61, you know, back when I was a kid was what you'd call the fundamentals of the basics today. And today, you know, you don't see a lot of guys working holes or, you know, building to go run a spot and coming back to the same hole and that sort of thing anymore. So when you're trying to teach green guys, new guys, just stepping in the ring for the first time, sound basics, they've never seen sound basics. Mm. So it's really a little tougher now than it was a number of years ago. Because I think what you what you have now, right, is, um, you know, at least back then, the, the kids that were breaking in, they might have had a chance to see some of that older style. But if you're, say, 2025 now, all that you know, really, is that your earliest memories are, you know, the 90s, maybe, of wrestling. And so uh, where that stuff was already starting to erode. So, so you don't have the maybe the greatest the greatest living experience. So that's why I always encourage people. And look, I've never been in a ring in my life, but I still encourage people to seek out older stuff, especially now we have YouTube, we have everything you have the you have Peacock, you have the ability to see things that you couldn't even see at the touch of a finger, take advantage of that just because it happened before you were a fan or even before you were born. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek it out. In fact, it's even more important that you seek it out. Well, you know, you're talking about, we're talking about filming shows the year before the Benoit Regal match, right? which is a classic today. I use it for training. Dr. Tom uses it for training. I know several guys that use it as a found, you know, as one of the foundations. Here is a great modern wrestling match. There's no dives, no huge somersaults in, into the audience or anything. It's wrestling. They're telling a story to athletes in competition. And that match holds up today. But, you know, to go along with that, we're talking about good basics. I, I along with other people I know, use the Buddy Rogers, Pat O'Connor title match from Comiskey Park in Chicago, 1961 as a teaching tool as well, because those, if that's not Rembrandt and, and Picasso in that ring, I've never 
ever seen Rembrandt Picasso, right? Yes, and you know that I did. I do want to talk to you about Buddy Rogers because I know that he was very, very, very special to you from the very yeah. beginning. But that match too, like you, like you mentioned it. Um, I, I, I have a friend of mine who, um, he is uh, an indie wrestler in the Northeast. His name is Lucas Chase, and I try. You know, we've been we've been watching a lot of old footage together and that was one that i pointed out to him that that we need to see and i tell a lot of people that that's a big one because i feel like i think what makes that match so so unique is that back then you very rarely had matches of that importance that were on television or that were or that were filmed in any way usually if you were there you saw it and otherwise you, you didn't get to see it you just saw the regular weekly tv so it stands out it's almost like with that giant crowd, Comiskey and everything, it's like a precursor to WrestleMania and the modern pay-per-views and things where you, you're not just working, you're working for this giant crowd and you're working for people watching on television. And it's a huge, competitive, important world title match. It really was ahead of its time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that, at that time was the largest crowd ever uh, attended professional wrestling match and you hear several different numbers but somewhere around 40,000 people yeah were in Comiskey Park that night so yeah exactly yeah and Buddy Rogers yeah it was my it was my childhood idol I when I was nine years old I you want me to get up and do the Buddy strut for me <laughs> I, I wish you know this is we're, we're we're looking at each other right now but when the podcast comes out it'll only be audio otherwise I would absolutely have you get up and do the Buddy strut I, I, right well, now I Absolutely would not do that. Right? <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I was. Well, you know, the crazy thing is, as a as a kid, you know, between ages nine and ten, um, I wanted my mother bleach my hair blonde. I wanted to look like Buddy Rogers. Of course, looking back at it, realizing back in 1949, 1950, 51, me going to grade school with bleach blonde hair, I'd have been fighting the street in the schoolyard every damn day. So she saved my life, probably. <laughs> Yeah, he, you know, it's funny when he's one of those people where if you talk to people of a certain generation, they will say he was the greatest of all time. Like, it, like if you talk to people maybe around my age or, or a little older, they'll say, if you ask that question, a lot of people will say Ric Flair, maybe. And if you talk to people that are very young or on the younger side, they might say somebody like Shawn Michaels or Bret Hart. But if you talk to people who, who grew up watching him and even the people who were working at that time, they almost always say Buddy Rogers was the greatest. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and uh, yeah, talk about being ahead of your time. There, uh, I saw a, um, it was a, a, a paper that a college kid had done uh, to, to earn a grade. I don't know what year it was done, but it was, he had interviewed Buddy Rogers and he's talking about buddies the way buddies sequenced wrestling matches he's talking about working right basically but uh, the guys the younger guys that i have shown that paper to i'll i've got it on my uh, on my uh, computer i'll shoot you uh an attachment and let you see this but but you're talking about somebody being ahead of their time rogers was the man his autobiography is extremely interesting and uh, you know it was just there was a guy and, and i've had old timers tell me this is it this is the only guy i've ever seen that could be a baby face in the first fall a heel the second fall and go back to being a baby face the third fall and get away with it he was just that good in manipulating the people 
Yeah, and you're talking about the Tim Hornbaker book, right? The Master yes. Master of the Ring. Yeah, I read it too. Right. It's really terrific. And and he gets into that in there where I don't think I I even fully understood that he was one of the first people in a modern sense to be thinking of the psychology of how to put a match together. You, you know what I mean? Right. Like, not that people didn't know how to put a match together before him, but just in a modern way of how, you know, how do we get from here to here and what do we do next? And what's the psychology of this? And how does this look to the camera and that kind of thing? Like he was just like a genius for that. Yes, he absolutely was. <laughs> you know, it's a shame. Uh, this guy after, well, he still was around the business for a while, but I, you know, it, it, he could have been a great booker. I've never stepping in the ring again, but just, his mindset. But then, you know, there were so many guys. Uh, I was blessed to, to grow up around guys that uh, in an era when probably some of the greatest bookers ever. Yeah. Uh, Leo Garibaldi, uh, Eddie Graham, George Scott. Uh, and, and then some, a lot of people wouldn't even know about Louis Tillette, uh was a hell of a booker. Uh, Joe Hamilton, the assassin also. Uh, there were some great bookers from that period of time. And they expected that because they were detailed people. So uh, you had you you had to be detailed. Quick story uh, talking about details. Uh, the finish of the second fall where O'Connor uh, misses the drop kick and Buddy takes the fall. Yeah. Okay. I worked that finish with Pat. I was the guy throwing the drop kicks on St. Louis TV a couple years later. Right. Bobby Bruns, the old wrestler was the booker in St. Louis at the time. So when he set the finish up, he said, I want you to hit Pat with two drop kicks. And on the third one, he's going to grab that, you know, and be out of the way. You're going to hit that top rope with your legs, springboard your back, and he's got you. Okay, good. We got it covered. So we go into the finish. I hit him with that first drop kick. But as I get ready for the second one, he's moving into the position to get out of my way already. I know he is, right? I, so we're going home on the second drop kick, not the third, which is fine. Pat O'Connor's the guy calling the shots. I'm going to do whatever he wants. So anyway, he's out of the way as I throw the second one. I get, you know, get my legs off that top rope, and, and it throws the springboards me back in, land on the back of my head. He hooks me one, two, three. We go home. He said, thank you. I thought, damn, we've had a good match. You worked for uh, you know, world champion and everything. Got back to the dressing room. Bobby Bruns was upset with me. I said, you hit him with two drop kicks. Miss the third one. We left the drop kick out. <laughs> so <laughs> talk about details that, you know. <laughs> right. That is acceptable. attention to detail. Absolutely. And, and so you, and so you're working O'Connor now, did you, this is somebody that you watched as a kid, as a fan, sure. and now you're in the ring with him. Did you have any experiences? I think Rogers was, mostly done but maybe he had that little comeback later on in the 70s but were you around him a lot uh, when you got into the business i have yet to meet buddy rogers as an adult <laughs> i have a picture it's on actually it's probably on my facebook someplace when i was 12 years old it was taken at cincinnati's music hall a buddy is in his trunks and shoes right and i have a picture of me standing next to him and uh that's the only time I've been that close to Buddy Rogers. We just never worked the same territories. That's a shame. And, yeah. uh, that, that was one of the things you, you mentioned earlier. I've done almost everything. Well, the one thing I've never done in this business is get rich. And I, and I think it's a little 
little late for that, Brian. I'm not sure. <laughs> but the other thing that I really miss is the fact I just wanted to wrestle Buddy Rogers one time. You know, that would have made me happy. He, um, I know because he he spent some time in the Carolinas later on. Okay, so you just yeah. missed each other. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's when he had the whole feud with Flair and the passing of the torch right. and that whole thing. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned him a, as a potential booker because I don't. If you remember from the book, I, one thing I took away from it was that the one thing about him was that as great as he was, he could also be very political. And I guess it rubbed some people the wrong way where when he would come into a territory, they were very wary of letting him have too much power, seems like. Well, and you know, in following him, even as a kid, you, if he went, he brought his guys in. Right. The guys he knew he could have great matches with. Uh, you could almost figure wherever he was going to be, Bearcat Wright, Sweet Daddy Seeky, uh, Buddy Austin, <clears throat> Prince Von Goering, uh, Billy Darnell, Right. And guys like, I mean, but, you know, it, it really makes sense. Right. I mean, sure. let's face it. If, if you're if you have a broad, you're taking a Broadway show on the road. Uh, you're not going to pick up actors in each town. You're not sure you're going to get the right ones or the good ones. So they'll do the show properly. Right. So he was sure he was going to have good matches wherever he was at because he was bringing the guys that were going to guarantee that. And that's almost something that's you know, a constant in wrestling. I mean, even in, in more recent years, fans remember that Hogan would do that kind of thing. And there's, right. there's also, there's the famous click with Shawn Michaels and all his friends. And I mean, AEW basically was started that way. A bunch of friends who knew that they could have good matches with each other. And they started a company built around it. So again, buddy Rogers ahead of his time right? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in that way. Um, you know, and I wanted to talk about um, talking about your beginnings in the business and everything, but also um, you got started in the Boston area, right? With Tony Santos, right? Tony Santos, yeah. Well, that was the legitimately, as far as I know, Brian was the first ever wrestling school. Hmm. Realized back then, this was a closed shop. I had become a fan at age nine. Uh, there was no amateur wrestling in the high schools in Cincinnati when I was a kid, right? So it was the YMCA's and I, uh, none were close to me. So I had two YMCA's and, uh, you know, I was getting some instruction, you know, but it wasn't, but I wanted to be a pro and it was frustrating because I asked referees at the matches or yes, some, you know, all kid, you know, you need experience. Okay. But how do I get that? Of course I know I need experience. I even went, drove up to Reynoldsburg, Ohio, but this is, I guess it was about 18 years old at the time, about a year before I, I really hooked up and where Al Haft's office was. Al Haft at the time was probably one of the biggest promoters in the country. He was covering Ohio, Michigan, West Virginia, uh, Indiana, and Kentucky with promotions. And uh, so I went up to his office. And although I didn't know what a booker was at the time, Frankie Tolliver, who I'd seen wrestle, obviously was his booker. And he came out and talked to me. Nice. It was very nice. Told him, you know, I want to be a wrestler. Well, kid, you got to put on some weight. I was about a 175, maybe 180 at the time. And get experience. There's that damn word to get experience. <laughs> Where do I get it? Nobody <laughs> lets me in the door, right? So uh, Wrestling Review Magazine, you know, back then there were probably eight, wrestling magazines monthly on the newsstands all the time. So, I mean, it was, it was big. And so the wrestling review had a story. This would have been in 
in in '59 had a story on Tony Santos, who was taking aspiring young athletes who wanted to take a shot at being a professional wrestler, and he was training them. I thought, wow, here it is, right? So I wrote a letter uh, to Santos in Boston and got um, got a, a trifold he sent me back, which I still have, by the way, with some notes on it, right, and everything. So in February of 1960, I got on the Greyhound bus in Cincinnati and made my way to Boston. And that's where I, that's how I got, got in with Santos. Now, later, after me, uh, Luke Graham started there in 61. Later after that, Rufus R. Jones, Dusty trained there nine years after I did. Oh, wow. And did, yeah. did they have, I, I always try and get the Boston situation straight because there seemed to be a lot of, of things happening in that era. Did they have a relationship with the Capitol McMahon office at that time or, or no? No, no. Tony was independent. Well, uh, Bowser had been the promoter in Boston. Right. He wasn't promoting at the time. Eddie Quinn, who was based in Montreal, ran Boston occasionally in the garden. Uh, but Tony uh, Santos ran more of the beach towns. I mean, he worked all of New England. But uh, now occasionally, in 60, uh, 61, he moved to the, the old Boston Arena, which was like two or three blocks from where we originally started to train, and had his offices in there. So he did run in there more frequently. But he, he was in the Boston uh, I was in the Boston Garden one time for Tony over the two years that I spent with him. And, um, but yeah, there was no big, big promotion there at the time. Tony pretty much handed all to himself because like I say, Eddie Quinn came in occasionally, but then Tony brought in some top guys. So the Vernetti brothers were in, uh, Eric Pedersen and, uh, Donnie Fargo, uh, Furpo was in, um, O'Connor was in up there. Uh, so, uh, but Tony kept us busy. He was running uh, six nights a week. And you, so the, the interesting thing to me, because I wonder sometimes how things have changed for people getting into the business. Because like you were saying, it's it was harder back then to get into it and it was more protected. I find that, um, now you were a per person that grew up as a wrestling fan and then you got into it. I see that happen so often today but I feel like it wasn't as much the case back then. Were there less people? It seems like there were more people who got into the business that maybe hadn't been fans of it, but they learned it when they got into it. Does that, does that, does that make sense? I, I think maybe there's more people today that see the money opposed yeah. to doing it from a passion for it or, or, you know, just excited about it. I think most of the guys back then actually, uh, well, you know, I, I won't say there's some guy that, you know, uh, a promoter saw as a big guy it was tough in some way uh, hey I make you into a wrestler but for the most part yeah I think what well, you know Jimmy Cornette and I've had this conversation too uh, so many of the guys were fans mm. before they, they they got in the business and uh, but yeah it's it's entirely different uh, when I uh, you know I started my training in February 1960. And uh, be quite frank, for the first couple of weeks, they handed me my ass. <laughs> they were <laughs> to trying to scare you away. Yeah, they were trying to scare you away, potentially. Well, they weren't going to smarten you up until they were sure that you were going to hang, right? Or you were going to be a part of, of, of the business. And when I tell young kids today, when I do a seminar or a training camp, I'll say, you know, I, I started my training in February of 1960. 
I had my first match July the 4th, 1960. Now there's almost six months there. When do you think they smart me up? I'm going to bet it was when you got in the ring. <laughs> they smart me up February or July the 4th, 1960. Amazing. The morning of my first professional match is when they smart me up. So did you, but did you have any inkling? I mean, you know, you're a smart guy. Did you, did you, how, how much did you suspect already before you got in there? Or did you walk in there thinking, I'm going to go whole hog and try to beat this guy up? What, what were you thinking? When I went in, I was naive as I could possibly be. <laughs> I was a wrestling fan, wanted to be a wrestler and expected it to be, you know, tough. To be honest with you, uh, if you know, during that first few weeks, had my dad have driven by as I was leaving to go back to my rooming house and said, "Hey, you want to go home?" I might have been <laughs> persuaded, possibly. Right? The soreness had worn off yet, but um, it was uh, it was just the way it was. No, you know, later into my training, I sensed it. Right. Now, I lived in a rooming house with several of the guys who were already active, right? I mean, guys who had been pros for five, six, seven, eight years. Guys like Pat Patterson, Terry Garvin, Ronnie Dupree, uh, Don Kindred, Black Magic, Alex Medina. Um, so, but they never smart me up, right? They would talk around, you know, when I was around, we'd talk about the business, but never, they would not talk about finishes or, or how to run a spot or, or anything like that, right? They kept me in the dark. But you started to notice things, but I was also smart enough not to open my mouth and say, hey, I think this is maybe all the show, <laughs> right? And for, for some of the, one of the old timers say, no, but let's make you a little taller yeah. if you think this is a show, right? Let me stretch your ass out a little bit. But, um, yeah, it was uh, the morning of July the 4th. Uh, Tony, One of Tony's sons came over to my rooming house, knocked on the door and said, Dad wants you to come over. He wants to talk to you. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm in trouble for something. Right? It's morning of July the 4th. We're not supposed to train. And it's like 9 o'clock in the morning, and Tony wants to talk to me. Oh, my God, I'm in trouble. So we sit down, and we, he's just, you know, how are you doing, and this and that. And he said, well, he said, uh, you've got your boots, you've got trunks, and, and Alma, Alma Mills, who worked for him in his office, had made me jackets. He said, uh, you better go home, pack your bag, today is your, your first day. And I, on those weak legs, I walked back to my, to my <laughs> rooming house and loaded my bag up and came back to the gym. And so he's sitting there, and, and he's kind of breaking the ice for me. I rode up to uh, Blue Hills, Maine, where I had my first match with the guys on the card. Uh, Joe Sasso was the other baby face. He was a Boston College football player who had been in the business a couple of years at that point in time. I don't guess Joe didn't pursue the business, I don't think, outside of the Boston area or worked for Tony. And then Bull Montana, who I had bought tickets to see and who was one of the meanest looking suckers in the world, if you want to be frightened, and uh, Cowboy Ronnie Hill. And Ronnie, of course, had worked with us in the gym some. So on the trip from Boston to Blue Hills, Maine, which is, I don't even know, 200, 225, 50 miles, I'm not sure. I got more smartened up by these three guys. Sure. And so that, that first night, Ronnie and I opened the show. That was my first match. Joe and uh, Bull worked second match. And 
then Joe and I came back against Ronnie and Bull in the main event, which was uh, standard for spot shows back then. You send four guys, get three matches. And when you tell somebody those shows lasted over two hours, they look at you like you must be nuts. Four wrestlers can't go two hours. Yes, they can. And <laughs> yes, you didn't, and can. you didn't have 20 minute in ring promos in between the matches either to, to kill, <laughs> to kill time and pad the show. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say that, um, it's, it's just so interesting to me how they did it back then because you could see that they were trying to protect their livelihood. You know, it's sort of like if, let's say you didn't work out and let's say at the last minute you decided, I don't want to do this. Now, if they had already spilled the beans to you, now you're going to take that with you and you know the secrets and you're not in the business. So that would be their right. worst nightmare to have happen. Exactly. So that's what they did with Vince Jr. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm teased. I, I have never had a crossover with Vince. I get along with Vince just fine. But no, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was a, a, a whole different world. And today, I think one of the problems with the young guys that try to get in the business is they come in realizing oh, it's, it's a show. Mm. It's all predetermined. I can be an actor. No, you can't. <laughs> it's, it's not about acting. I mean, this business is unique unto itself. I don't care. You know, uh, Brian, I have trained guys from virtually every walk of life over the, since I started training guys in the early nineties and, uh, they all think they know, but they don't. I mean, it's a whole nother ball game. Uh, I've seen great college athletes that couldn't make it in this business. I've seen young men who had a passion for this business, but weren't, had never done anything athletically become good wrestlers. I mean, it's, it's a crazy business, but yeah, you, you can't say, well, I played this or I did this and it'll match up. It won't. It's a whole different world. The other thing that you did, which I find so fascinating because, you know, when, when you're someone like me, I'm always looking at old footage and I have a ton of old magazines and I'm always going through all these different wrestling things and you just keep popping up everywhere. It's just incredible <laughs> to me. Like, um, you know, I, I, I use this term sometimes with people, but it's like you're the Zelig of wrestling, just appearing all throughout the history in all these different places. And, and my fingerprints are all over the place. right? They are. And, and then, of course, the most amazing thing to me, because I come from a magazine background, is when I discovered a lot of people don't realize this, that there was a WWWF magazine in the late 70s. And that you were responsible for it. I, I got my hands on a copy. I'm paging through it. And I saw your name there. And I, I just, I think we've talked about this before, but, and then I discovered you also did an NWA one, right? How, how did those happen? Well, that's a crazy thing. You know, a lot of things you, you mentioned, I've done a lot and I have uh, a lot of, worn a lot of different hats and several of those hats are just about being in the right place at the right time. It wasn't something that I necessarily set out to pursue, right? It was just something that happened. The magazines happened, uh, started um, in in the Carolinas with Jim Crockett Sr. I was in, there in the office one day and a bunch of us, and, and I was looking through some old um, these souvenir photo albums that you, you know that they sold, right? They'd have a picture, like two guys on a page, a little bio sketch, right? And you take those around and get the autograph and everything. So I was looking at the, those playing in Mr. Crockett's office and, and I was looking through them and, and uh, I said, Mr. Crockett,
market. I said, uh, these are really nice. Uh, you don't do these anymore? Well, I forget who it was now, to be honest, Brian, but somebody had done them for, you know, had put these out, put them together, and they had left the, the company or the territory or whatever. So I'm, he said, well, why don't you try it? I said, try what? <laughs> he said, why don't you put one of those together? So he said, I'll, you know, I'll pay you to assemble it, and then I'll give you a percentage, you know, of what we sell. I thought, why not? You know, give it a try. So we put together, first we started, that's the first couple of things that I did for, uh, for uh, Mid-Atlantic, was a couple of those photo albums. Then we started with a, uh, a magazine with some stories with just actually, uh, it was just a fold. I, you know, take a big sheet of paper, fold it, you got cover back, back, front and back, and then two pages inside. And then that grew. And then we got into um, the artwork. I start with the Mid-Atlantic magazines. And of course, uh, I'm proud to say that we did a lot of first in magazines. We did the first uh, themed centerfold in the Mid-Atlantic magazines, which carried over. Well, everything I did with the Mid-Atlantic and the NWA magazine, I did with Vince's magazine as well, just obviously, you know, uh, doing it a little different anyway. But um, so... The magazine thing grew. In fact, before I left the company completely, uh, Francis Crockett and I had, had actually talked about trying to get uh, involved with a distributor, you know, who distributes magazines to all these stores hmm. and maybe, you know, get them out in that part of the country on, on newsstands. But now they didn't pursue that after I left for whatever reason. But, uh, yeah, that's how it grew. The NWA thing, that was the one and only Jimmy came back from uh, from an alliance meeting somewhere and was, was, said to me, he said, come up to the office, got something to talk to you about. He said, I got a little project. I said, really? He said, what? He said, you're going to do an NWA magazine for the entire alliance, but I have one page for each alliance territory. And, you know, I said, just a little project. <laughs> when did you want it finished? Day after tomorrow or, or what? Right. Simple, simple. So we got, but we got the one out. But the problem there was, I ended up writing some of the pages for some of the promotions who didn't seem, they didn't know what the hell, you know. But Jimmy had already told all these people, right? And he told me he just contact like Soli and, and Tampa, right? Who would work with different people. So I had to go searching for a couple territories. I had to find pictures for their territory. I wrote the copy. They, they didn't know what to do. They were wrestling promoters, right? They didn't sell magazines. And then the, I, I forget how many, but I, each, each territory had committed to buy, I forget, 1,500 copies of, of the magazine, right? Right. And, uh, and then they would call and say, what do you do with these things? You sell them at your marinas is what the hell you do with them. Uh, uh, but it was so, I think we were the only ones that really, you know, set out to, to do because we had more or less set the pace. Well, the, the magazines with, uh, with uh, Vince, we only did five issues and they decided to quit for whatever reason. I, I, I don't have a clue. So you never found out why they, they just pulled the plug on it after five issues? Uh, no, uh, I'm assuming that they didn't sell well, or, you know, I think the distribution, Brian, uh, again, you realize the promoters in that 
that era. It was about selling wrestling. Right. That was selling uh, tickets. There were no, no souvenirs, no merchandise, really. You know, oh. we as a wrestler, I had copy, eight by ten black and white glossies of myself, which I, you know, get somebody to hawk for me at the arenas for a buck a piece. But that was actually all the merchandise at the time. So they, you know, they just thought, well, they're supposed to sell themselves or something. I don't really know, but it just never took off for them. Right. I I don't, I don't know. doesn't make sense. And, and if you can, for people that are listening, if you can get your hands on one of those, uh, they're, they're pretty amazing, especially the WWWF ones. I just find so interesting because Everybody thinks of WWF magazine. You think, okay, that's the magazine that Vince started in 1984 and when he shut all the other magazines out and all that. But here it is. And obviously it's being produced not in-house, but here it is, a branded WWWF magazine. And I know you were saying that it was Vince Jr., right, was the person, was kind of the contact person, right? So well, that's George Napolitano and I are friends. Right. Of course, you know George. Of course. Or do you? I do, yeah. And yeah and uh so he saw what we were doing you know because george traveled he was in the carolinas some and we were buddies we'd hang out you know when he was there so he knew i was doing the magazine and i think he's the one who suggested it to vince Mm. and then george called me and said vince wants to talk to you about this and so we set up the deal you know so george was shooting the pictures (laughs) excuse me and writing a copy for the most part and then i was doing all the assembly in charlotte and our artists and printers and everything was, you know, uh, like the covers, you know, the artwork covers. Nobody's ever done that again. I have the one with um, superstar Billy Graham on the cover. That's the one I have. The with. one who's at the top of the mountain. Yes. Everybody's trying to get to him. That was number one. That I think, yeah. is those, something. Now, those are my brain children. I mean, I, I would come up with an idea. Now, listen, I can draw stick figures. That's about <laughs> as best I am as an artist. But I would sit down with Paul, the artist at... Cal Buyer Studio was the people that did all the layouts and the pages and his, you know, and stuff like that. And the artwork, Paul was the artist there. And I would sit down and with some stick figures with Paul and here's my idea, Paul. And then he would give me, you know, two or three uh, copies of my idea and, and one to pick. But uh, I don't know why anybody didn't stick with those. I thought that the, those were great. And they look but great too. It's you're talking good. about having those. I still have some of the mid Atlantic, a couple of the NWA and a few of uh, the WWF. And I do, you know, of course I want to hang on to, you know, a copy of each. I don't have all, all the issues of any of them, but um, the NWA is most expensive because there's only one. That's a hundred bucks a copy. Uh, 75 for, uh, for the WWWF magazines because they're far more rare than the mid-atlantic right and then 75 for the mid-atlantic and the uh, as well so are you so you're selling them people can buy them oh I, I i'm not you know like out advertising or anything but i yeah i, I sold a guy a few of them uh two weeks ago oh wow yeah. that's great i don't know you if contact there's... me less thatcher 28 at gmail.com and now you know as you know i'm cyber dumb so <laughs> I, it's not like i've got to move i i don't know how to put them on my page or anybody's <laughs> page right but uh well like this gentleman that i sold a few to uh, a few weeks ago he sent me pictures of the copy do you have this this cover do you have this cover 
and I did, you know. So, but yeah, no, I've I've still got some of them. It's still, but the NWA thing is to me. I wish I was hoping that that would continue. That's to, the to that, flourish, but it never did. And that that one has Terry Funk on the cover, right? When he was the yes, world champion. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the interesting thing to me is that you know that Vince Jr who at that point, his father was still in charge and he was working for his dad, but he already had that, he was already looking ahead to different kinds of things beyond just wrestling, even that early. Yeah, well, he had, uh, there was the hockey arena up on the Cape. Cape Cod, yeah. Yeah, that's, this was during that time. Okay. And Ernie Roth and Bob Harmon were up there helping him run New England. Vince Jr. was, that was, and so I, yeah, his dad, as far as I know, wasn't involved in, in the magazine thing at all. That was simply, and, and maybe that's why they decided not to continue because maybe Jr. was only selling in the towns he was promoting. So, right. Or it might have been I a thing know. where maybe Vince liked it, but his dad wasn't crazy about it and, and said, why that's are we a doing this? Too. Maybe yeah. he had that yeah. old school mentality of why are we wasting time with this, you know, kind of a yeah. thing. Right. But um, yeah, that's how we got into the T-shirt business. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. Because promoters didn't want to. It's crazy to think about now. And, and, you know, when I was doing the when I was writing the Sheik book, which we we, I think that's probably the last time we spoke was about two years ago when I interviewed you for the Sheik biography, which is just now coming out, by the way, in in a couple of months. But um, one thing I learned when I was writing that book was that he in detroit and this is talking like late 60s early 70s they were selling um pennants like little flags which doesn't doesn't sound like a big deal but that was that was a big deal at the time pennants of the different wrestling characters you know i had brought that up as well to well to jim jr jim crockett jr uh about the pennants but the the way uh for those who don't know, the first ever pro wrestling T-shirt was a Frisco Booster T-shirt. That the artwork was done by Jerry Lawler, but the original idea was mine, and then Jack and Jerry we, we refined it and sat down and we put out the first ever wrestling T-shirt. I've said before, it's a shame Jerry. None of us were businessmen enough that we got some sort of trademark. Because can you imagine if we could get one percent of the net? on all wrestling t-shirts that were sold today you'd be t- you'd be interviewing me i'd be in my cabana somewhere in the caribbean <laughs> i know i know you know what that's one thing i found out when i was when i was working at wwe and i was learning about the merchandising and how and how that works from the inside and i was seeing the cut that wrestlers get on all the merch but especially the shirts because as people know, you know, those wrestling shirts go for exorbitant prices when you try and buy them at the right. arenas and stuff. But the wrestlers get now, I seem to remember, and this is going back when I was there, that they were getting about $5 a shirt. That's the number that pops into my head that that's what they were getting. And if you think about that, I mean, that sure. th- that wound up being in a lot of ways, the T-shirts was where they were in for some of these guys, it was where they were making most of their money was from selling yeah. the shirts. And sure. so they all well, wanted. We were, we were selling those shirts for three dollars and fifty cents a piece, <laughs> and, then, and you could get them in any color as long as it was white with black <laughs> ink. We were kind of like the first Ford, right? You could, right. You could get any color you want as long as it was black. 
But yeah, uh, well, of course, we weren't entrepreneurs. We were wrestlers, right? How that all came about was I had pitched that idea, the T-shirt idea, to a couple of promoters. And they, ah, we're wrestling. We're promoters. So Jack and Jerry and I were sitting in Jerry's apartment in Charlotte one night having a few beers and just talking in general. And I brought up my frustration about the T-shirt thing. You know, and so just out of clear blue, Jack says, why don't we do it? I said, do what? He said, the three of us kick in a third each of what it takes to, you know, get the door open and sell T-shirts. Okay, let's give it a try. So Jerry, uh, Jerry and I found a printer in Charlotte and found a, you know, an outlet for the, to get the shirts uh, at a decent price. And so we got to start. And like I say, we, we didn't, we we're selling for $3.50 a piece. So it wasn't about, we weren't looking at, you know, well, you're going to have to pay these buildings, you know, percentage. I remember Norfolk Scope, we just stayed away from. They wanted 40%. Off the top, forty percent. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, so and then and, you know, but the deal was as we went on and people saw we were making money. All of a sudden, the promoters started to get interested. That'll so do. now the buildings want to cut. Now the promoters want to cut, and now we're thinking, nah, this is not going to work. So what we did to finish out the merchandise that we had. Um, God love my mom and dad who are both gone now. But I was the one who was handling the shirts. Like when I went to Atlanta during the war to do the TV and work in the office with Gordon, I got a two bedroom apartment for a guy who only needed one bedroom. The other bedroom was for t-shirts, <laughs> right? Hundreds of t-shirts back in the other bedroom. So, you know, and then of course I went back to Charlotte after I finished there. And I'm thinking, this can't go on. I'm not going to rent an extra bedroom and carry these damn shirts around. So my dad uh, had cabinetry out in the garage that he had used for something else. So we moved them off there, and we just went to mail order, right? Uh, Keetzer, uh, I, I would write some columns for Keetzer. In exchange, he would advertise, you know, the T-shirts and stuff. So that's the way we worked it out. So it never we, – we did well initially. But like I say, we since we weren't entrepreneurs, we didn't have all these extra expenses – we weren't expecting built in. So once we got out of it, we got out of it. But you can still get a copy of the first ever wrestling t-shirt at Pro Wrestling Tees, the Briscoe Booster shirt. It's available there now. Oh, wow. That's great. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to get one myself. Get but, one. <laughs> but you mentioned you mentioned Keetzer. So just for people that don't know, we're talking about Norm Keetzer, who was a magazine publisher, right? Right. And I think at the wrestling time... News. Right, wrestling news, and I think he was doing wrestling review for a little while, wasn't he? At some point, he took I don't it think over. He did review, but but he did several. Like he would custom make his wrestling news to fit Watts's territory, right? Fit Burns' territory, right? So yeah, that's he, a, yeah. He also had for a time, I think, before what you were doing, they had a um, kind of a tailored WWWF magazine that they would sell at the at the Garden and things like that that he was doing. Have you seen that? I don't think so. I, I may have, but I, I not. I don't remember it. Yeah, I think it's a little bit earlier. And, and quite honestly, I don't know if, if Norm Keats was listening, but quite honestly, the one that you made was way better. The paper and the quality <laughs> of the pictures. I mean, it's gorgeous. It really is. It it it, it feels more like a, a program, you know. But then when you right. open it, it reads like a magazine, which is is right, really cool. Right. 
But well, you, you, you mentioned you mentioned you being the, the editor of the WWF magazine, right? Yeah. Uh, when After was offered, you know, when they interviewed After for that. Oh yeah. He he, he recommended me, and I'd already, but they knew I was a hard head. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I had a mind of my own and hard to deal with. But uh, no, I because Bill told me that he said if they contact you, and I said no. But I, I think that, well, one of the reasons, they had offered me in, uh, was it, 85, when George Scott was booking for mm-hmm. Vince. Uh, they flew me to, uh, up to, well, LaGuardia, and then took the limo into Stanford. And they offered me the job as controlling or putting together all the promos for all the shows, because that's what I'd done. When George was a booker for Crockett, you That's mean like, we uh, you mean the we localized together there. Yeah. You're talking the, about the, the live promos, right? The localized like TV promos and things for the yeah, different, yeah, for the exactly. different arenas. Yeah. So, uh, and to be quite honest, they, it was a great offer. I mean, the salary was good. The benefits were good. You know, uh, what wasn't good is they wanted me to live in Stanford. And the biggest problem with that, my dad had just passed away a couple of years before I was living here in where I'm living now in Knoxville, but I'm only four hours from my mom in, in Cincinnati, right? In Stanford, I'd be a little more than four hours. And of course, somebody said, we'll move your mom to Stanford. But if you remember back then, the guys were on the road 10, 12 days in a damn time, right? Right. So the last thing I do is move my mom someplace where she knows nobody. And then just and leave her. Right. <laughs> yeah. Then I'm leaving. So that was the main reason that I actually turned the offer down. But it was a good offer. It was a very good offer. Yeah. that You know, that seems to happen a lot. I always hear stories of, of people who, you know, would relocate to the Connecticut area. And then sometimes maybe six months later, they're out of a job. And now they've, they bought a house in Connecticut or something. I mean. Even me in my small little part that I played in the company, I mean, I didn't have to go very far. I grew up in New York City, but I know because people who listen are already complaining about my accent, which isn't really that bad. But I grew up in New York City and um, I moved out here out to Connecticut back then in the early 2000s because of that job at the at the WWF and WWE publications. And I've been out here ever since because now my kids are in the school system and everything. So even though I haven't worked there for 15 years, I've lived out here now for almost 20 years. But uh, I wouldn't be here. I mean, I probably wouldn't still be in the city, but I, I wouldn't have moved to Connecticut if it wasn't for that job. I might be on Long Island yeah, or somewhere. I, 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 you know what you're saying? A young guy that, into, that went to a, a small college in Cincinnati, he, he came and interned with me for a credit, right? At HWA when I had when I had the contract yeah. in Cincinnati. Anyway, uh, we're still friends today. But he uh, wanted to be a part of that, so he saw there was an opening for someone uh, at WWE, and he went up and uh, interviewed with uh, HR, and uh, they got he got a job in in the video production thing, right? But he ended up coming leaving because he said, "I can't afford to live there." <laughs> yes. Yes. Considering the salary versus uh, the expenses, it just doesn't work itself out. So yeah, I know. And uh, well, I know JJ. I remember that happened. You know, he right. had the house, and, and well, did. all of a sudden he's not doesn't have anything. Cornette went nuts living up here, right? He hated it, and I know, I know, I don't think Jim Ross was thrilled with it, and people have had to relocate, and I, I think I remember. <laughs> 
Tony Schiavone said, because, you know, he he was an announcer for about a year for Vince. Right. And he made a joke recently on Twitter about how I forget what the joke was. I'm going to really mangle it up. But the gist of the joke was that that was the dumbest thing that he ever did was move was moving to Connecticut. And then a year later, he had, you know, he moved back down again. Yeah, yeah, I, I got you. But yeah, it's uh, that was the biggest thing for me. Like I say, the offer they made me was was a good one. But here's the thing, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. When I was sitting, when I was in Vince's office, just Vince and I talking, yeah. right? And he said, "I'm trying to get. I, I want to hire guys." This is when W, you know, when he was just starting to take over the world. Yeah. In '85, and he said, "I'm hiring. I want to hire people who think outside the box." And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to, uh, you know, to, to make something happen worldwide. And he said, like, what, he said, I'm getting people to take outside, like George Scott, George will have a, a beard, uh, down to the floor before he leaves me. Right. And it was maybe five or six months after I had turned down the job that George made the mistake of bucking Hogan, who had his nose buried in the proper orifice. Yeah. Right, want to put the belt on steamboat? Yes, I'm with that instead of Hulk, and uh, and got let go. And I thought, damn, George's beard grew fast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because I'm for people that remember, and and maybe you know, I I don't think it gets talked about enough, but steamboat at that time was just about as over with the fans as Hogan was. And just in that little window, it was maybe like 86, 87. That was the time to really strike. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I could have seen that happening. I mean, I was a kid then, and I can tell you, all the kids watching would have eaten that up with a spoon if they put that belt on Steamboat. They were really ready for that. And, and I think, yeah, go on. I was going to say, and Steamer could work like yeah. a crazy man. And Hogan needed people to carry. And, and listen, Ter- I, Terry could promo. Terry had a look. And the way he was showcased, it worked. But he needed people to jack him up and hold him and make him look good. Where Steamboat could make you look good or and, me and, look good. And not only that, but he also was, and, you know, he was a lot like a career baby face. But he was a great promo. I, I, I think he doesn't get enough credit for that. He was a really yeah. fiery, exciting promo you know it wasn't in the style of hogan but he really made you feel it and believe yeah. it he was great at that and i think and of course i understand with hogan too the movie right that was you know rocky three made such a, a difference in in featuring hogan opposed to rick but yeah it's uh and you know that's to me after I, i'm going on my 62nd year in this goofy business and the one thing that i hate and i hate I've always hated it. It's the politics. Yeah, it's tough. It's the hardest part of it in some ways, and, and it can sink people that, that uh, they have every other tool in the box except for that. And that's what happens. Now, I, I'm a, I remember at that time with Steamboat that he was headlining all the shows that Hogan wasn't on. So, I mean, they had that much faith in him that, I mean, my, right. my first, the first time I ever went to Madison Square Garden with my grandfather was 1987 it wasn't hulk hogan it was ricky steamboat in the main event you know against the hockey talk man and he was a strong enough draw to be doing that and he and he pointed that out to me remember when i told you how i held his rolex and i did the interview with him at the Pillman right. show 
we were talking about that, and and I'm I'm going to assume that he had to have been aware that those plans were being discussed because he seemed to also believe that he could have pulled it off. And he was saying how he was carrying so many of those of those, I guess to call it a B show because Hogan wasn't on it, but he was carrying those right. those shows. Oh sure, sure, yeah, that's. Uh, but you know that there's a point too because our our business is a show. Because, well, you know, if, if you're a football player, if you can block, tackle, throw, catch, punt, kick, whatever, you're going to get a contract. Today, you can be the greatest wrestler, pro wrestler in the world. But if you say the wrong thing or somebody doesn't like the way you look or the last promo you cut or the way your hair is, is combed, or, you're not going to get pushed. It has nothing to do with talent. And, well, you've been inside the business. You, you know that, too. I mean, it's. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, a lot of guys who barely slap their ass with both hands are, are being pushed. Right? Well, it, it's another reason why, you know, wrestling is so different. Like when they talk about they just had the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame and when people get elected to Halls of Fame, it's so different than looking at something like baseball, you know, because they'll say, well, you know, some of these wrestlers are getting into the Observer Hall of Fame who've only been wrestling for 15 years. And you think, well, in baseball, that makes sense because by 15 years, you're just about winding down. But in, in wrestling, you may not even hit your stride for 15 years, you know, or at least 10 right. years. And because, like you said, it, it it's show business and you have to get yourself over. And it's not just it's not about, you know, winning matches or or uh, or in baseball, like, you know, getting hits or whatever it is. Right or even in boxing, let's say you, you win enough matches, you get to the top of the contention. It's very different. You, you, you can take years before you can maneuver yourself into a place where you're valuable, you know, right. so the totally different has to like you. Yes. The promoter has, or see something in you at least that's yeah. The, the politics are horrible. I mean, there's great guy, great workers that are working mid card and, and low card matches there are horrible workers that are getting a big push. Sure. And of course, that's not going to change. It hasn't changed in my entire life. So I don't guess it's going to change anytime soon. But now it's, uh, there's more entertainers than there are workers, hmm. more acrobats than there are workers. Back in, I, I, I think I say without contradiction that during, you know, my time in the business, starting with 1960, there are a lot of amazing workers because everybody had to be a worker to a certain degree to get a job in the business, in the industry. And today you can be a personality, you can be an acrobat, you can have a look and absolutely not be a good wrestler and still get a big push. Right. Because people will, if they like you, like you're saying too, they'll protect yeah. you and they'll make sure you're not exposed and, and they'll sure. they'll build things around you, which isn't the worst thing in the world. But it also means that a lot of the guys are less versatile. Like they just you can't just drop them in any situation and know that they're going to be fine because they have to be very carefully protected. Yes. You know? Well, you know, a, a current thing is going on. And I don't know the, uh, the lady personally, but this Jade Cargill in AEW, right? When I built, started this tournament, I said on, on the podcast I do for the Observer, uh, I've been saying it from the beginning, they're going to put the belt on her because she's got a look. Great look, But yeah. she's not ready to carry that belt. Right. She, not talent-wise. Not 
And uh, sure enough, and I said, and the match with her and um, the finals was. Oh, uh, Ruby Soho, right? Was it? Ruby yeah, Soho? I said it's not yeah. good. And it was a horrible match. Let's face it. If it you was. watched it. I think everybody agrees on that. Even her supporters have to admit that was not her best and, moment. And, and to me, that, that's sacrilegious. It's, it's not that. It's not personal. I don't know the woman. I, she's got a child. I'm sure she loves You know, she's a good lady. I don't know anything about her personally. But I know she wasn't ready to wear a belt. Because to me, Brian, my champion, if I'm booking a, 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 for a company, the guy, the guy or the girl that I put a title on has to be good enough to prop up an opponent occasionally. Never mind needing to get propped up themselves. Right? Sure. If you stop and look at all, well, let's look at all the old NWA champions. What do they all have in common? It's not their look or their size or their age, but they're all workers. They all can prop every, they can make, uh, you know, a silk purse out of a sow's ear as the old saying goes, right? And that was such an important quality that they could go anywhere all across the country and everywhere else and have a good match with whoever. And I'm not saying that Jade Cargill shouldn't at some point. But right now, well, see, and for me, and I realize the average fan does, but to me, I've been around this thing so long, I see little things. I look for details. I know the way she walks, the way she's in the ring. She's not comfortable yet completely, right? She's not sure where she's supposed to be or what she, of course, she does her double buys and I'm I'm that bitch. Great. Okay, past that, she's lost. And and again, it's not a personal issue. It's not like I'm in love with Jade and she you know, <laughs> threw me aside or anything. I don't know her. I'm talking as a trainer, as a booker, as a promoter, right? I Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I do agree. I, I love her look. It's great, and I think that she has the potential to be really something special with a look like that. I mean, we even ran a story in PWI a few months ago about speculating that she could be the next China. She has that great look, but she yeah. just w- was probably – pushed out there a, l- a little too soon, you know, uh, just a little too soon. And, you know, it, she just n- needs a little more time. Now I did hear that she has been working with Brian Danielson. So I did too, yeah. that is definitely a step in the right direction. I would have to it say. Damn sure. Is. <laughs> yes, sir. It is a big step in the right direction. <laughs> Excuse me, But yeah, I, uh, but you know, to me, that's my, one of my problems with the business as a whole Today, is everybody's in a rush. It's like, we're all double parked and the cops are getting ready to write tickets. We got to hurry up and get this done and get out there and get our cars and get out. Uh, everything's done too fast. Yeah. You know, there's Leo Garibaldi. One of the things I'll never forget that Leo always said, you always give the people what they want, just never when they expect it. That's great. That is and a great today, line. Today, today. The element of surprise is more important than it was 60 years ago, 40, 50, whatever. Because today, yes, everybody understands it's a show. But that doesn't mean you can't sell them. You know, when I I, I said to you earlier when we were just talking uh, that uh, when some young guy says, uh, everybody's smart, I say, well, you're probably not because you just said that. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, a lot of these kids take it that I can do anything I want because the people and fans are smart. So I'll just entertain myself and, and hope like hell they like what I'm doing too. 
but the point is uh, that you're not in there to entertain yourself. You're in there to entertain the people that are paying the money to sit in the chairs. And the biggest thing is, I don't care if the people are smart. You can still sell them anything you know how, to, if you know how to sell it. Yes. And that's that's the problem. The details are being overlooked. Most guy, you you can pick guy as a trainer. Uh, facial expressions, body languages aren't as quality as they used to be. But stop and think about this. Uh, these same people that say everybody's smart and and you go to the movies? Oh, yeah. You got a favorite movie? Yeah. How many times have you seen it? Uh, ten, uh, five, whatever. Okay. You know, that's all it work, too? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it drew you back. Why? Because they hooked you. And here's the reason why they hooked you. The story was a good story that was compelling, and that hooked you. The actors were good actors and actresses. The dialogue was good. Everything was good. And they made you wait. They didn't give you 16 high spots in the first 30 seconds. They made you wait an hour and 20 minutes to get that finish. And you did. Why? Because they hooked you. Why are we not hooking people? Because the actors aren't good actors. There can be good wrestlers. The comedy is anything but funny, <laughs> stupid, sophomoric, childish, call it what you like, but it's not, most of the time it's not funny. The funniest thing I've seen in a while, Brian, was uh, Sammy Zane and uh, Brock. The first night that Brock oh, yes. walked out the ring and Sammy said, I'm the leader in the locker room and Brock said, and who are you again? <laughs> but their timing and everything was, was as good as Foley and, and uh, Dwayne Johnson, right, used to be. I think, but, yeah, they were great. I think Sami Zayn is very funny in general. I like a lot of what yeah, he does. Uh, but most guys aren't. Yes, true. That's I mean, true. and the comedy is so stupid. Uh, to me, a couple of years ago, my favorite show on TV was NXT. They had all the damn good. This was more wrestling like I used to like it, right? The way we used to work. Where is it today? Yeah. Well, everybody if knows. If, if you're 12 years old and the hormones are starting to rage, them girls look really cool. Right? And and what, what? I'm not 12 and my hormones are dead. <laughs> and, and what gets me about that show, like you said, it's like they're going for this very young kind of hip crowd. But if you look at the numbers, the average age of the people watching that show are, you know, over 50, over 55. Yeah. So. They don't, or maybe even older than that. And they just don't seem to know their audience. And, and the other thing about that's funny and bizarre about wrestling, like you're saying with movies, you know, in a movie, and this has been said before, I'm not the first to say this, but everybody knows the movies work. But while you're watching the movie, nobody in the movie is winking at the camera and no one is dropping character and 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 saying something that's meant to be clever outside of the storyline. But in wrestling, they'll do that all the time and they'll acknowledge and you could say, well, oh, it's because it's live. But no one's doing that in a Broadway show either. You know, they're not breaking no. the fourth wall like that. I believe, you know, here's the crazy thing. You can still suspend the people. Now, nobody's going to, you know, I, some of these angles or storylines, as they're called now, are just ignorant. 
I mean, you couldn't believe them if you were smoked the best dope in the world and, and drank the best whiskey. You couldn't get crazy enough to believe them. But, you know, the point is you don't need to be today because everything is so crazy. Everybody's a gimmick, right? When Dusty passed away, uh, some of the young people that I knew, they'd say, boy, you know, you knew Dusty, you worked around him and, worked, you know, uh, yeah, and talk about him. And, and I said, one of the things you guys are missing the point on here is one of the reasons that I say that the old days were smarter in a lot of ways. What? What is it? I said, one of the reasons Dusty was over, there was only one of him. That's right. Yes. There weren't 10,000 of him. Today, everybody has a gimmick. Everybody has music. Everybody has a goofy hand signal, right? Everybody's got a catchphrase. So nothing's unique. That, yeah. We're all the same. That's something that, and then unfortunately, I, I got to wrap it up because I know we're going a little over time, but I could talk for hours with you about this stuff. This is one of my favorite topics. But Dusty Rhodes, you you hit the nail on the head. And I mean, you knew the man. I, I met him a few times, but you knew the man. He, was, he deserves so much credit because b- before him, you know, the heels have always been colorful, histrionic, yelling, screaming, but traditionally baby faces were very low key. They were very relatable. They were supposed to be just like an every man kind of a character. Dusty was the first one to be this over the top, super colorful, great promo, but as a face, you know, but now, like you said, now everybody is, I'm not going to say everybody's Dusty Rhodes because there's only one Dusty Rhodes, but, but everybody's trying to be like, that kind of a character and it doesn't stand out as much that's absolutely true it doesn't or at all because they're being told who to be right i mean dusty was being dusty because he wanted to be you know people say who were you i said i was les thatcher and they look at me like you must be nuts right no i was a wrestler i didn't have a gimmick i you know, I was just a wrestler. I used to struggle with that when I was on the magazine. And in the later years, they had a lot of people there that were not wrestling people. And they they were magazine people, you know. But some of them had watched wrestling as kids. But we're talking about 80s and 90s. So they would look at some of these wrestlers that we had and they would go, I don't get it. What's his what's his persona? What's his thing? And I would say, well, he's a wrestler. <laughs> and they were, they were expecting, well, is he a plumber? Is he a, what is he? Is he a, a wrestling uh, clown? Is he, is he, you know, uh, uh, an electrician or a hockey player? No, no, he's a wrestler. You know, it's not to say that he can't have a, a character or some type of, of, of angle with that, but he is not, not everybody has to be this high concept gimmick, every single wrestler. Today, if I were running a, I would have a wrestler just be what you're saying, a wrestler, right? Well, this kid hook, right? Yeah. He pays no attention to the people. It's like, hey, screw you guys. I'm here to kick somebody's ass. He and he's getting over. He's got something, doesn't he? It's really yes, organic. He's not being what everybody else wants him to be, or what everybody else is. And I've said this about Brian Danielson. God love it. I said, if, if he, if somebody, if there's a contest for wrestler of the year and he doesn't win it, then it's fixed. Yeah. But since he has been an AEW, he has elevated everyone that he has been in the ring with. He yeah. has reestablished wrestling, not, not clowning, not diving, not, you know, not craziness, but wrestling. And 
I'm if if I stand up now and cheer, I would, you know, for Brian Danielson. Yes. I love him. <laughs> and I, I think he's found himself a lot more now over there. I think he's happier and he's and he's just better. When he was in WWE, I mean, yeah, he was great, but there was a period there where you just got the sense that he just didn't want to be there anymore and his heart yeah. wasn't in it. And even his matches were getting kind of boring and formulaic because I felt like he just wasn't, his heart wasn't in it anymore, you know, but yeah. that's not the case you, now. The, the character that, uh, well, here we go. I've <laughs> Courtney would say, we're not a damn character. Okay, Jim, I'm sorry. <laughs> right. The person that Brian, that Dragon is portraying currently, right? To me, isn't a heel. He's just screwing with your head. Yes. And screwing with everybody's head, right? Yeah. And I love it. I think, damn, this is great. Because, quick story before, you know, talking about people not believing or it's all a show and nobody cares and, uh, you know. I said, that's bullshit. Uh, an example I've told people. I said, you know, back when uh, Lesnar split Randy Orton open, accidentally or real I don't but that was big talk around the water cooler the next day right was it shoot was it work ah we hooked you right we drug you in you could do it if you know if you know how and and there is therein lies the problem right I said this back when Cena was red hot I said here's the scenario there's a baby face in the ring. Two heels are beating the hell out of him. Cena's going to make the save. And the people are going to be talking about it. What's different between the save he's going to make today and the one he's made 10,000 other times? Today, he's going to make this save, Brian, with no music and in street clothes, with long pants on. <laughs> right? And people in that building and people at home now I don't care if it's two three or 102 are gonna say maybe that wasn't part of the show there was no music and he had street clothes on maybe they were really hurting that guy you'll get yes. that kind of conversation yes. from doing stop doing the nonsensical crap that you're doing all the time I I talk about I beat that drum constantly if I had my way one of my rules would be no music on a run-in ever because a run-in i mean i shouldn't even have to explain it neither should you a run-in is supposed to be spontaneous it's not yes. part of the show so why in the world would they be playing your music when you came out unless you have the quickest music guy of all time sitting at that board who's who's just watching for people to run in because it takes me right out of it every time because when i hear and that I'll music something hit, else i need to stop doing is if if i were booking for somebody right now your 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 sixteen buddies aren't walking to the ring with you for your singles match. <laughs> if you can't find your way out there alone, then don't go. Right, go find a job some because everybody interferes. Right, right, everybody, and it's and that's why I keep trying to tell these young guys today is here's the thing. You're right. People understand it's a show, so you need to make them stop thinking of it as a show. Surprise is your strongest weapon. Don't telegraph the finish 10 minutes before you do it, or, or don't set the table up in the right place, you know, and, and oh, <laughs> you're going to use a table. 
surprise is your strongest weapon, I believe. And don't put a don't put your opponent in a situation that's going to make them look bad because it becomes very clear that they are helping you along and they're cooperating with you. Like if somebody needs to stay in one place for a longer amount of time than it makes any sense of why they're there, it just makes it look bad. I mean, I, you know, I always go to my wife as the arbiter because she is not a wrestling fan and she'll be sitting watching with me. And she'll point things out like we were watching, uh, which was otherwise a, a pretty good match with uh, Becky Lynch and Dewdrop at the Royal Rumble. It was actually maybe the most underrated match. And, right. and they had her where she had to be draped over the top rope, just hanging on her with her stomach on the rope until Becky could get up to that top rope. And I think it was hit her with a leg drop or something. But even my wife is saying, why is she just staying there? She's laying on the top rope. And why wouldn't she try to get herself off that top rope? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But if you don't make it look real, guess what? We're not going to believe it's real. That's, I mean, that's just, that's just, simple, you know, common sense, right? Right. I mean, my God. Yeah. To me, if I started a promotion, I, I wouldn't make a big fuss out of it. I wouldn't announce it. But dives would be limited, if at all. Don't touch my referee or you will be disqualified. You have 20 on the floor. Your ass better be in the ring by 19. These guys have spent a week on the floor, right? When the match starts, and then let's work on the floor for the next 15 minutes. And the referee stands there either sucking his thumb or with it up his rear end, (laughs) looking like a fool. I mean, it's just, it's, it could be tighter. And I believe you honestly could draw people in better. Well, the hours match between Dragon and the Cowboy. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Except I read a couple of places, it must have been really young people saying, why would they have a whole hour match on a two-hour show? <laughs> I've seen a whole hour <laughs> match on a one-hour show. <laughs> yes, I have too. I've wrestled on one. Right, <laughs> right. But yeah, it's just they need to go back to some of the the simple basics they truly do and they will enhance their the way that people are seeing what they're doing i truly believe that well i knew this was going to happen because i i have so much i always want to ask you about and talk to you about and and i i say to people that we'll, we'll save it for the next show and i'm going to have you back and with you i mean it i mean well i always mean it but with you i especially mean it that i i want to have you back because there's so many things that i didn't even get to talk to you about but I don't want to go too long because I pride myself on having a very economical podcast that people could listen to in, in, in one sitting or maybe two. So we'll have to hold it there. But absolutely, I want to talk to you about Gordon Soley. I want to talk to you more about HWA and Harley Race. There's so many things, but it'll have to wait. We'll do another one, I promise. All right, right. I've enjoyed it. And uh, it's, I, I, I know I'm not a cyber <laughs> student, and I'm sorry about that, but Hey, it's been fun, and I'd be more than happy to come back and do it again with you. And you let me know, we'll do it. It would be my pleasure. Thank you. This has been really great. There you have it, folks. My conversation with the great Les Thatcher. Les is always fascinating to talk to, fascinating to listen to, and I will definitely be having him on again in the future uh, to get into more amazing stuff. So I hope you enjoyed that. Um, Before I say anything else, I want to mention something that I forgot to mention at the top of the show, and I just want to keep everyone updated, so I'll mention it now. But um, 
A little update on Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, my biography of the original Sheik that's coming out April 12th. I've mentioned in the past that uh, there's going to be an audiobook version, and there is, and I'm recording it. And uh, the contract signed, and I just want to mention that I'm going to be going into the studio First time ever doing an audiobook, going into the studio uh, at the end of March for about a week to record this thing. So I anticipate that it's going to be coming out probably later than the print and digital book. Uh, I don't have an exact date yet, but uh, uh, it will not be available at the same time as the actual uh, print and digital books. But the audiobook is coming. So I just wanted to keep everybody updated on that. You can pre-order Blood and Fire, of course, on Amazon.com or wherever you uh, order your books online. Barnes & Noble, it's available in lots of different places. So... Uh, also want to mention we have some great guests on uh, the way in future weeks here with Shut Up and Wrestle, so please keep listening. Uh, next week, we're going to have, as I've mentioned a couple of times on recent shows, a luminary of the Southern California territorial wrestling scene. He was uh, the close confidant and assistant to uh, Mike LaBelle in the Los Angeles uh, Hollywood Wrestling Territory, Jeff Walton. So Jeff Walton is going to be our next guest next week. Keep listening for that. We've got other great people coming up, uh, including the uh, historian and uh, very interesting personality, Dave Dynasty, on the way. And somebody that I think you're going to really enjoy, which is going to be the first in a series that I plan to do on uh, corporate employees of WWE who you may not know their name right off the bat at all. But like me, these are people who had incredible experiences and have amazing stories. And so uh, this is going to be uh, a woman named Deb Jazway, who was the um, senior art director in the creative services department of WWE for years. So she's got some great stories. You're going to love that in the weeks to come. Um, you can, as always, find this podcast at suawpod.com. You can also get it wherever you get your podcasts on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or wherever. Easy to find. Um, also, the magazines that I am in, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can find at getpwi.com. You can get your physical or your digital copies there. And for Inside the Ropes, it's insidetheropesmagazine.com if you're looking for that. And you can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can also get me on Facebook at uh, Pro Wrestling FAQ. That's the page that I typically use for uh, my wrestling-related content. You'll also find links to my author page on all those platforms. Hey, while I'm at it, might as well welcome uh, mention that I'm also on TikTok. Why not? All the kids are doing it, but I've been on it for a couple of years now. Brian R. Solomon there as well, if you're looking for me. Uh, God help you if you are. But uh, in any event, this is Brian Solomon, as always, asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in. And reminding you, in the words of the great Bobby Heenan, by way of the great Joey Lewis, that a friend in need is a pest. So long, wrestling fans. 